Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, September 3rd, we are studying Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. Solomon again warns his sons against the forbidden woman, the adulteress. Though she speaks of pleasure now, she only leads to death in the end. Wisdom seeks after the goodness of God's gift of marriage. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Hans Feeney. Pastor Feeney serves at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be with you. So as we get started this morning, we're in Proverbs chapter 5. We've seen Solomon addressing his son or his sons throughout these opening chapters, giving wisdom to his son, to all who would listen. Context really isn't quite the same in the book of Proverbs as it is in other types of literature in the scriptures. But what do we need to know about this book, wisdom literature, where we find ourselves in the book of Proverbs, the topic that we've got for today going into this text? Yeah, so uh, the kind of the general theory about Proverbs is that it's one, it's a book that Solomon writes uh, toward more in his later years, uh, where he has uh, sort of gone astray and then come back and uh, is seeking to to pass on the wisdom that uh, he learned through uh, kind of the, the muck of, of sin and sorrow uh, to his son. So... Um, so that so that's kind of the general theory as to uh, the origin of the of the book of Proverbs, and so there's um, it's really kind of a fascinating book because there's a lot of uh, it's a very interesting combination of what, I suppose what we would just simply call kind of practical wisdom, but that's always sort of coded in uh, divine promises. So it's it's never inseparable from the theological content that's kind of uh, uh, from what from whence all of this is flowing so you know it's so this is not this is not just like a this is not simply you know a a father teaching his son how to change the oil uh, in his car but in recognizing that in every aspect of your life uh, you need to be driven by the wisdom of God and so that's kind of what Solomon is is getting at now, in, in this section in particular, he's going to apply that wisdom, it seems, to the the sixth commandment. Previous guests have noted that there, there appear to be 10 addresses to his sons here in these opening chapters, which line up with the Ten Commandments. Not that each one is sort of, you know, the first one is the first commandment, the second is the second, and so forth, but that in each one you do tend to see him look at a particular commandment or commandment sometimes. This one, I think, by and large, is going to deal with the sixth commandment and matters of marriage. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, and it, it is, um, it's really kind of interesting because I think, uh, you know, it, sort of in, in contemporary American culture, one of the things that we are least comfortable to about talking with our kids about is, is sex. Uh, and and this is an area where kids need a tremendous amount of guidance because especially as you get older and, um, and as you start entering into your sexual years, you know, by virtue of the fact that, you know, so, I mean, you're, you know, your parents don't need to teach you how to breathe. 
because your respiratory system is functional in and of itself. It, that comes naturally to you. And your parents don't need to teach you how to, um, you know, how your kidneys need to function. So, but, and that's, that's your endocrine system, right? Is that, is that right? That's the system that deals with all the kidneys and stuff. I think that's right. I think that's right. You can tell I would got a theology degree and not a medical degree. You would <laughs> hope at least you don't want your doctor to, to come to you and say, uh, your endo this kidneys are the endocrine system, right? That's not what you want your doctor to say to you. But, um, so, you know, you don't need to give your children guidance on how to have their kidneys function or things of that nature, because these systems that God creates in your body are all complete. Uh, and run by themselves, when the one exception of the systems in your body is the reproductive system. So that needs uh, another person in order to be complete. If you're a man, you need a woman in order to complete your reproductive system and vice versa. And on account of that, our uh, our bodies are filled, become filled with sexual desire over time. And uh, there are good ways and, and bad ways. There are healthy ways and profoundly destructive ways, not only physically, but uh, mentally, uh, spiritually, psychologically, kind of all those aspects. That's a big part of, of sexual behavior. And on account of that, uh, children need great teaching and great instruction in one form or another of, of how to understand that. And so uh, Solomon does a great job here of uh, showing us some, some very great warnings uh, that wise fathers would be, would be able to pass on to their sons um in particular so and that's a this is a very very beneficial thing because this is kind of an area where oftentimes christians just figure think if they just give their kids some general guidelines uh that that things will work out and that's not really the case i think a lot of times because when you it's sort of like with uh, with drugs like you teach your kids when they're little don't do drugs and your kids are at the age where they just just accept at face value everything they tell you and they go drugs are bad you say drugs are bad and their kids go, okay, drugs are bad. So I don't want to do drugs. And then they get older and their friends start doing drugs and they go, why are you doing drugs? And they go and their friends say, cause drugs are awesome and they make you feel really good. And it's amazing to do drugs and your kids aren't prepared for that switch. They aren't prepared for you. You just gave them the talk of these things aren't good. And as kids, they think that means uh, it's not going to be enjoyable, you know? So like dr drugs are like broccoli. Uh, and then as you get older, they realize, no, wait, drugs are like candy and you need they, they needed the instruction for uh yes there's an initial benefit to it but there's a greatly there's a, a hugely destructive aspect of this that you need to watch out for and it's the same thing with um with sexuality where your kids will when you're you know, they're relatively younger and you'd give them the talk about how babies are made and as a christian you teach your children uh this is only for within the uh, the bonds of marriage. Well, when when they're pre-sexual, they think, okay, well, that that all sounds really gross and disgusting to me, anyways. So uh, I, I won't need to worry about that. And then as they get older and their bodies begin to develop, and then suddenly um, the whole kind of pleasure aspect comes into it that they weren't quite prepared to deal with. And you need to essentially teach them um, that the pleasure that your body is seeking is not worth the destruction that using this gift God has given you uh, recklessly is going to cause. So Solomon uh, gives us great, um, a great example here is Christian parents for how it is that we should address these issues with our children. Let's see how he does that then. This is again, Proverbs chapter five, beginning at verse one. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. 
Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. We'll pause there. So this is, in this section, Solomon invites it. We've heard this before. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Now he's going to take this wisdom and understanding and apply it particularly to the matter of marriage and sexuality. And he, he brings out this a character within the book of Proverbs, the forbidden woman, who we saw come up earlier in chapter two. Solomon talked about the forbidden woman there as well. And here he begins to describe, this would be the the pleasure that you were talking about, that, that the pleasure here is not worth the destruction that's going to come, but Solomon's going to to invite his sons to consider, well, this is what the temptation is. He's going to put that idea of the pleasure in front of them, as you were saying, so that they'll know what's coming. Yeah. So that, um, I mean, again, yeah, like I was saying before, if you want people to flee from temptation, that you need for them to understand what they're going to experience when the temptation comes. So you can't just, you can't just trust that um, that when the temptation arrives, because you told them not to do the thing, that they will not do it. Um, you need to be honest about these things. And, you know, it's like I remember, you know, as I was growing up and I had friends who would go to different churches that um, tried to be uh, hip and cool uh, and sort of sacrificed theological understanding on route to g- get there. And so, you know, they would they would do this stuff when they would try and teach kids admirable things. You know, they'd try and teach kids, say, not to do drugs. And they would say things like, don't get high on drugs, get high on Jesus. And I don't think that's a terribly helpful way to approach things because you're pitting, you're, make, you're creating a competition uh, between two things where the godless thing is designed to win. So in other words, if you say uh, the high of believing in Jesus is better than the high of, of, of drugs. Well, no, if you're looking to get high, drugs will definitely do a better job of that than Jesus will. Jesus gives a far greater treasure, uh, an infinitely greater treasure, but that treasure is received and experienced in different ways than drugs. Uh, And so you need kids to understand that. You need them to understand this is why the thing is alluring. And this is really what Solomon is getting at here as he begins to describe this forbidden woman, right? So for her her lips drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. So in other words, she's going to be alluring. There's going to be something about her that is going to draw you to her and that's going to make it seem like this is a worthwhile investment, that it's worth risking everything. Because that's really all that uh, adultery is. This is all that sexual, um, for, this is all that fornication and, and, uh, and those, this, that is, is that it is your, it's a battle between your flesh and your mind or your flesh and your heart and your flesh telling you the thing that I am going to get from this is, uh, is a worth, it's, it's worth risking my soul. It's worth risking my happiness um, in order to experience this pleasure. And you don't prepare people to face that battle by telling them 
that the pleasure is not there. You know, the, um, so you need to rec- So in other words, you can't just say, well, when you uh, encounter uh, women in this world who want to seduce you, uh, just remember, it's not worth it. Turn away. He's sort of, you know, getting into this. It's going to seem like it's worth it. It's not going to be readily apparent to you in the moment that it's not worth it. It's really going to seem like a good idea at the time. But in the end, you're going to be destroyed by this. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. She's going to end up destroying your life. And it's not going to be worth it, even though in that moment, it's going to seem uh, like it is. We see this throughout the scriptures, that matters of marriage and sexuality are a common temptation that even the saints succumb to. I mean, I think of several come to mind, and I I know we want to look particularly at David and Bathsheba as it applies to Solomon. So maybe let's right. save that. But who else do we see this with, Pastor Feeney? Yeah, well, I mean, you see this. Uh, I, I, I once remember having a theological argument with a guy I knew um, who was not right about a lot of things. And this, and this was one of them. Uh, and his position was, we can't say that polygamy is inherently bad because the Bible never explicitly says that polygamy is bad. And my position is, again, going to a drugs metaphor, that's like saying you can't, it's, it'd be like if you watched a movie about a guy who does heroin and destroys his life and ends up destroying the lives of everyone around him and concluding that because at no point in the movie did anyone ever say, you know, heroin is bad, therefore you couldn't say that heroin is bad. So the, the point that, polyg- that polygamy is, uh, is not how God created us to be uh, and that it's godless is fairly clear when you look at the effects that it has or that kind of, you know, polygamy tangential or polygamy related things um, have in the scriptures. So, you know, you see this in in Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, where God says to Abraham, hey, uh, I know it seems like your body is all but dead, but uh, you're going to have a child. And Abraham has a wife named Sarah. And Abraham doesn't fully trust in God's promise. And so he conceives a child with uh, Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. And that ends up creating division and strife within their household. You see this with Jacob and Leah and Rachel. So Jacob loves Rachel, wants to marry Rachel, sort of gets hoodwinked into marrying uh, Leah first and then takes on Rachel as his second wife. And you have two sisters who presumably grew up loving each other who end up being at enmity with each other because they are put into a situation where they're competing for their husband's affection and they're um, and there's this struggle with his blessing. And you see how that uh, the horrible effects that has on David's children. So uh, so because David loves one of his wives more than the other one, he loves the firstborn son that he has from that wife more than the other one. He loves Joseph more than his other sons. Uh, and that is largely to, uh, re- responsible for Joseph then being sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, what you know, obviously, as, as the story goes on to tell us, that what God meant, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. But it's certainly not a good thing that happens there. You see this with Samson and the fact that Samson is not content um, with the available Hebrew brides uh, that could be uh, present for him, and instead is going after uh, godless women, and that results in. Uh, in godless results, so you, you kind of you see this you know, all throughout uh, the scriptures that when um, that when men d- 
see when men are not content with uh, the godly wives that God has presented to them. Uh, the results are disastrous. It may seem like a good idea at the time, may seem like it's worth the investment. And God will use that the, the brokenness that comes from that to accomplish uh, his purposes. But uh, it's quite clear from the context, really bad stuff happens when you're not simply content with the one wife that God has given you. And so that, I mean, that would speak to the matter of polygamy as something that is not a part of God's gift of marriage. I think it's in the examples that you were bringing out, except for maybe, well, I don't know about Samson, maybe it does apply in that too, but particularly with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, the allure of polygamy was not not quite the same as, as well, I think, the picture that Solomon is painting here, right. where we're thinking of uh, physical beauty of the woman. Right. It's not absent, but the but the desire is for for children and for heirs there. And I'm I'm, I'm not sure if I have a point in bringing that out. Yeah, but, no, it is. It's still it's still a different thing, right? Um, in largely, but the kind of the common thread behind both of these th- both be, behind both of these. Yeah. So Solomon here is speaking more about seductive women. He's not so much talking about uh, taking on a second wife in kind of a uh, sort of a broken, you know, society situation type of thing. You know, so like, yeah, if you look at Jacob, for example, well, he's already married to Leah. So what do you, you know, what are you going to do at that point? Uh, at least, you know, in the in the ancient world, where taking on a second wife is common. So it's not quite the same thing here. But the the underlying thing here is in being content with what it is that God has given you, right. and how you won't actually find true peace and happiness by pursuing something that God has not actually given you or by, by looking for fulfillment outside of the marriage bed that God has given to you. Right. So that even if it's not the same reason to get into the sins against the sixth commandment, the result is the same, that you still experience these effects, these negative effects that, as you said, came out in the example of of Sarah and Hagar or of, of Leah and Rachel and, and the entire family life just gets thrown into shambles. Now, right. particularly with the example that Solomon does bring up and the way that he does speak, it's hard not to think of, of his own personal experience or rather the personal experience of his father, David, with Bathsheba, whose union did uh, end up resulting in Solomon. So maybe the, the place to start is what what happened with David and Bathsheba? How does that fit into this text? Well, yeah, I mean, so to kind of use the language of the text, so David is home from war. Uh, he's, you know, kind of walking around enjoying his status as king. Uh, and then he looks out and upon a nearby rooftop uh, bathing, he sees uh, oh, the lips of a woman dripping in honey. He sees a woman whose speech is smoother than oil. So he sees this beautiful woman who doesn't belong to him. Uh, she belongs to another man, uh, in particular, Uriah is his name. And yet David assumes in this moment that the pleasure he would find uh, in laying with Bathsheba is greater than any risk that's that's going to come. And that, of course, proves not to be the case. So uh, David commits adultery, Bathsheba conceives a child, uh, and in an effort to cover up uh, his sin, he tries to get Uriah to uh, have sexual relations with his wife. Um, Uriah won't do so. Uh, so David resorts to putting him on the front lines of battle, withdrawing the soldiers, and Uriah ends up being killed on the battlefield. So David ends up being guilty of murder uh, in order to cover up uh, the sin of taking this woman that didn't belong to him. Uh, the child then ends up 
that they conceive ends up dying. Uh, and then uh, David, so David, who's now taken Bathsheba's his wife, goes into her, comforts her, gives her another child. That child ends up being Solomon. And yeah, and what's what's really interesting about this is you know, Solomon here is, you can tell that he's dealing with true wisdom because true wisdom uh, doesn't care about your biography. True, true wisdom is recognizing what's true, even if that truth is, uh, to some extent, brings shame or humiliation upon you. So, that, you know, this is one of the things that um, that pastors oftentimes struggle with, or or that we're, we find conflict in the parish life, is that you want to teach people how to lead a Christian life, and then sometimes that godly wisdom uh, brings pain to other people. So, you know, like so, for an example of an example of this. Uh, we as a culture have a low view of children. Uh, birth rates have dropped catastrophically in, in recent years. People love money more than they love children. Uh, they love pets more than they love children. It's a bad thing. So overall, that's the case. And we ought to be able to say that it's bad. And so pastors ought to be able to just simply teach their congregations, you should love children more than money. That should be more important to you. Having when you Your aim in life should be to get married and have children. Uh, that's a godly blessed thing. And then you'll have people who never were able to get married, people who maybe did get married and weren't able to have children. And th that word of wisdom hurts them because of their own circumstances that they find they're not able to have children or they weren't able to get married as they wanted to. And then there's kind of this pressure that they will try to apply to pastors to say, oh, you can't talk about things like that because that um, you're, that brings harm and it hurts people in, in circumstances like mine. And so in other words, what they're basically saying is the thing that's true, you can't say it because that brings me sorrow and sadness. And Solomon doesn't do that here. Uh, it's really a quite an amazing thing where S Solomon has to know that he's, you know, he's part of this is speaking from his own, his own being. It's not just, you know, hey, guys, I did this and that brought ruin to my life. But he's able to say, don't do what my father did. Uh, you know, even, I'm, you know, look, I'm glad I exist. I want to be here. God used that sin to, to bring me into this world. But nonetheless, there's no denying the fact that that's not how God wants you to live and that doing what my father did will in fact bring harm upon you and ruin upon your life. And there's just a boldness there that Solomon's able to say, this is true. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter to me if that personally brings hurt to me because it's true and you need to know that. I, that's a that's an excellent point. And I, I wonder, just from what Solomon wrote in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, verse uh, 3, he said, When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me. And then the, the text continues as if Solomon is, is repeating what his father, David, had told him. Now coming into chat, and this is this is speculation, but but the way that you've laid it out does make me wonder if if what Solomon writes here is even perhaps a part of what his own father had told him in recollection, looking back on it himself. And I know that I know I, I we can't say that for a fact, I suppose, but it, it does it does make you wonder if if even this is a picture of David's own reflections. I mean, especially given, for example, like Psalm fifty one that we know David wrote in response. If if some of this is is David's reflection, I, that may be too far of a stretch, Pastor Feeney. But why? Well, yeah, no, I don't know that it is. I mean, you know, that Psalm fifty one is written for everyone, and so you know, da David has the burden. This is the the burden of being a prophet and the burden of being uh, 
of being inspired by the Holy Spirit is, at least in David's case, and in the case of some others uh, in the Old Testament in particular, New Testament as well, um, your dirty laundry gets aired to the world. Uh, so now this doesn't mean that we are all as Christians called upon to air our dirty laundry before the world, uh, but that God uses you for his purposes and your filth is going to be recognized by the world in order that, that they may know better. And yeah, I mean, this is this is an example that as Christians, really, we really ought to follow. I think, you know, kind of like one of the things that um, that pastors, I think, often hear from people is they think that you can't teach your children what's true if you have not abided by that or if you haven't lived according to that, you know. So how can I teach my kids not to have sex before marriage if I had sex before marriage? How can I teach my kids, you know, not to um, do drugs if I did drugs? How can I teach my kid not to make these mistakes if I made these mistakes? And the answer is um, by recognizing that it's not about you. Uh, so, so you know, the, the reason you teach your children not to have sex before marriage is not, the, your goal as a parent is not for your children to be as righteous as you are and not any more righteous. And, and of course, there is a hilarious self-righteousness in all of that. Like, oh, well, pastor, I... I did these things. And if I couldn't get through my life without committing these sins, surely my children could not possibly do that. Yeah, okay. Or or maybe your children will be more pious than you. And one of the ways that your children might be more pious than you is if you actually teach them these things and you recognize, look, you're when you teach your children the gospel, you're telling them to you're telling them who you are. You're telling them I'm a sinner. Uh, who was unworthy of, of eternal life, just like everybody else. And on account of that, um, I needed the forgiveness of Christ. And likewise, you teach them about the law and you teach your children to recognize if you te- keep the Ten Commandments, by and large, your life is going to be better than if you don't. And um, just because you manage to survive things doesn't mean that uh, there, that someone else can't do better. You know, like in the same way that if you're a military general and if you go, oh, here are the times I screwed up in battle and, uh, and I, I got a bunch of people killed. Well, you would never say, well, I messed up in battle, so I couldn't possibly teach someone else not to make the same mistakes I would. We recognize that's insanity. You would say, you don't want to make the same mistakes I did. If you want to get through your life with, you know, having less blood on your hands than I do, here's what you want to do. And in the same way, uh, this is what Solomon is getting at here. Here's the stuff my father taught me. Here are the mistakes my father made. Here are the sins my father committed and, uh, and, this, and how that brought uh, ruin into his life. And I'm passing that on to you and I'm adding to it from, you know, from my own experiences, the wisdom I've gained from seeing what happens when, uh, when you turn from the word of the Lord. So, so it doesn't, so who cares if your kids realize that you're a sinner from this, the, the thing that you need to, um, you need to protect your children from sin, not from the knowledge that you sin. Hmm. Words of wisdom. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, September 3rd, and we are studying Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. We've got Pastor Hans Feeney with us. He serves at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, prior to the break, we've been looking at these first few verses here of chapter 5, this forbidden woman that Solomon describes, and we've, we've been comparing that to the situation with David and Bathsheba, the sin that David falls into. And as you were describing it, what's recorded there for us in Second Samuel. The, the text there, I think, makes it pretty plain that this is David's fault. He is the one who looks upon a woman who is not his wife, sees her bathing, and he's the one who views her in the way that Solomon describes here in Proverbs chapter 5, which I think is a helpful reminder that Solomon is not giving his sons here or any of us an out when it comes to this matter of adultery. That if if we fall into this temptation, he, he's telling them, look, this is the danger that you need to watch out for, regardless of what else is happening. This is your responsibility to watch out for this temptation. Yeah. So in chapter seven of Proverbs, Solomon talks about something similar, uh, but it's a bit of a different take on it. So he's talking about women who are much more seductive, uh, much more, uh, I'm, I, I don't know what the word, prostitute tutorial, whatever the word might be, uh, where they're going out of their way to uh, to seduce you and, and draw you into their chambers and kind of destroy you um, with lust. Whereas here, this is not so much the case. It's kind of interesting. So in, in chapter five, he says, or in verse five, chapter five, verse five, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to shale. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. So uh, this it's a it's a remarkable uh, approach to this that Solomon is taking here. Yeah, where it's not um, where he's basically saying this is she doesn't know what she's doing, uh, you know. And and I think we've probably all known uh, women like that in lives. In particular, you know, this is a thing you often see in life: women who don't have dads. They don't grow up with men in their lives who teach them how to be valued and cherished by men, and so they grow up wanting male affection. And they just kind of discover, based on the world, that a way to get it uh, is through giving your body to men. And they're not trying to destroy these men's lives. They are not trying to bring them to ruin. Uh, This is just the messed up, uh, godless way that they think is how you uh, become important to people, how you find approval. So they're they're wandering and they're just following the path of of this fallen world uh, into condemnation and they don't know it. So it's a it's a really kind of interesting approach that Solomon takes here, where he's basically saying he's, you're talking about women who this is not necessarily a lady who's trying to destroy your life. You know, I mean, so this is not a not necessarily like a Delilah type of situation, you know, where mm-hmm. you have the seduction of Samson so that um, you know so that you can get him in a moment of weakness and, and destroy his, his rule over, uh, over, over uh, the people of God. Rather, this is just simply, you're going to find women who are beautiful. Their beauty is going to be enticing to you. It's going to seem like it's a really great idea. Um, but that, that sweetness is not going to last. It's going to turn to bitterness, that smoothness, the smoothness. So that there's an interesting kind of poetic juxtaposition here. Verse five, the first half of verse three, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip in honey. And then verse four, but in the end, she, uh, first part of verse four, but in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood. 
which I looked that up, uh, by the way, because I, I, I was wondering exactly what that is. It's not nearly as cool as it sounds, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's um, it's a bitter herb that's apparently used for making uh, nowadays people use it for vermouth and uh, absinthe. Right. So it's a bitter tasting thing. So she starts off being sweet and becomes bitter. Uh, second half of verse three, and her speech is smoother than oil. Second half of verse four, sharp as a two-edged sword. Mm. So she appears to be sweet. She appears to be smooth. It turns out she's actually bitter and will tear your life apart. And this is not so much by by virtue of her intentions. It's simply the nature of partaking of flesh that isn't yours to have. Mm. So that reality does get experienced. And Solomon brings that out in verses 7 through 14 of this chapter. He talks about, well, how is this experienced? And and I think it's it's twofold. He, he talks about the honor that you will give to others. They're going to be merciless to you. They'll take your strength. Your labor will go to someone else. And then you're going to, to speak in regret. What do we see as, as Solomon draws out the effects of the adultery in this life? Yeah. So, I mean, it's helpful to remember kind of where Solomon is coming from. So, right. So he's king over the land uh, and his offspring are royal. And so there, this is, you know, ancient world where, you know, kings are not simply figureheads, but they're actually rulers. They're in effect judges over the justice in the land. So your job as a son of the king is to know how to build um, a healthy and just world. And there are going to be people who are going to seek to rise up against you. There are going to be uh, foreign nations and hostile actors within your own land there that are going to seek to destroy your reign so that they can exploit your riches and um, you know bring violence and death to those that they hate. And what Solomon is saying here is, is basically that you know you follow your lust down a dark alley and you're going to quickly find yourself in a position where you can't use your, where you don't have the strength that you need to defend godliness and, and justice. So, um, so yeah, lest you give your honor to others. So a king needs to be honorable. Now, otherwise the nation fails to be honorable. So, so, so nations uh, reflect the, uh, the nature of their rulers in this. Um, and, and so you lose your honor, your people will lose your honor. You seek to be merciful to your people. You put yourself in a position of weakness where your kingdom can be taken from you and merciless people will take it from you and their, and their mercilessness will uh, emanate through the land. Uh, so less strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. So everything you build is going to be taken away from you because you weren't, uh, you weren't protecting yourself. You weren't guarding yourself. You were making yourself weak uh, in, in the hands of another, you know, in the hands of another woman. I mean, you know, so you see this, you know, like, you know, uh, everyone has sent for quite some time been uh, highly obsessed with the musical Hamilton, right? Which came out onto Di the Disney plus network a little bit ago. It's a uh, recording of a, of a live stage version. And you see this in the life of Alexander Hamilton, how he's this great, amazing founding father who, who has so much to offer his nation. And then foolishly, he gives himself to a woman that's not his to have. And then he finds himself in a position of weakness where he ends up being extorted by this woman's husband. Well, you know, if he hadn't done that, then that man wouldn't have had any leverage over him. Uh, and then Hamilton's political enemies are able to use that um, scandal as a means of kind of isolating him uh, and sort of the destruction of, of his kind of political ambitions from that moment on. 
And so you, you see how this is not just a matter of like, you're going to upset your wife, which is true. And that's kind of first and foremost above everything else, but whatever is good and holy that you have to offer this world, to build up this world and to serve your neighbors, um, that's going to be taken away from you by people who are not going to do those things. You know I mean? It can, this is the way that the Kings need to look at, look at their at their lives, you know, is that especially in the ancient world where you don't have constitutional rule, where everything is just a, a show of power, is that if you are not in a in a you are called by God as a king to rule your people with justice and mercy, to model and reflect the love of God for your people, and you need to protect that because if you don't, someone is going to come along and take that away from you, and that person is not going to honor God. That person is not going to remember God's law. That person is going to um, to rule according to the way of the devil. So, yeah. In other words, you fo- you you follow a woman who doesn't belong to you. You pursue her for pleasure down a pa- down a dark path. You're not going to come out of that path with your strength and and your honor. You're going to come out without those things. And the people who take them from you are going to make the world a much worse place. Mm. Right. And and you will you will realize it too. I mean, you, yeah. you'll and and you'll regret it. That's the I think the speech there at the end in verses twelve through fourteen. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers well, um, or incline my ear to my instructors, or even if, yeah, if we go back to 12, right? How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to my instructors. So, you know, there's the there's the old quote. I don't remember who said it. Let's go with Mark Twain. That sounds like a, this sounds like a guy who would have said it. But the quote, the uh, youth is wasted on the young. Uh, and, and there's there's so much truth to that because you're young and you have energy to accomplish anything that you have the strength and the desire and the zeal to make anything happen. And all you want to do is stupid stuff. All you want to do is follow the lust of your own flesh. And the curse of being old is that you know what it is that someone needs to do, but those people won't listen to you. So you, you, you have people saying to you, you're going to throw away everything if this is what you do with your strength and your energy. Uh, and you hate what it is that they say. You're convinced that they don't know what they're talking about, right? That's the that's the uh, that's how we all view parenting when we're kids. When we're when you're, I, I often say when when you're a child, you think your parents know what they're doing, but don't know what they're talking about. Meaning that, like, if your life is a is a submarine, as a family, so if your life's a submarine, your parents know how the submarine works, but they want to take it to stupid places. That's how you think of when you're a kid, and then you become an adult and you actually realize it's the other way around, where you know exactly where you need to take your kids, right? You need to get them, you know, out of Drugsville and uh, and into good education and, and faithful, godly uh, people land. But you have no idea how the submarine actually works, and you're just pushing buttons and hoping that it doesn't blow up. Uh, and so, so that's what Solomon is kind of getting at here: is that the people who were telling me, the people who knew where the submarine had to go. The people who knew where I had to go and where they needed to get me were telling me what I needed to hear. And I hated what it is that they had to say. Mm-hmm. And then you see what is the result of that? I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It's brought destruction to my life because I didn't listen to the people I should have listened to. So my sons, listen to me. Don't make the mistakes I did. Listen to me when I say I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, when you think about if, if Proverbs was indeed written toward the end of Solomon's life after he has experienced much of this, again, how does that, that, that certainly adds to the, the effect of these words that he's, he's writing here. Let's go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, because what, what's great is that not only does he describe the, 
the negative effects, but he gives us the positive side. Why, why is it that marriage is so great? So Proverbs chapter five, now in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. That's the rest of Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23 there. So, Pastor Feeney, I mean, I, th- I think here Solomon switches gears, and he does start to describe the positive effects of marriage in a couple of ways. One, it, it sounds like he's saying, look, would you want would you want another man to lust after your wife and to commit adultery with her, why then would you do that with another woman? Instead, rejoice in the wife that God has given to you. Yeah. So, um, and I love the way that in verse 15, uh, that it talks about this, uh, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. So in other words, you know that your own well isn't poisoned. You know that this is, that that's good water from there. Um, you know, so back in the days when that's how people got drinking water was from wells. That was the thing is that you have to live amongst people that you know that you can trust uh, because otherwise death comes from elsewhere. So with a with a godly with a godly faithful woman, with the wife that God has given you, that's your own well. And everything that you need to find peace and happiness, you're going to find from her. And anything from from outside of there is is only going to risk um, bringing you death. So, um, yeah, so let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. So the, the wife that God has given you, find peace with her. And because there's nothing that the adulteresses of this world can offer you uh, and that's it, actually real that you don't have from, from your own wife. They have nothing to, to give you. Uh, th- you know, this is to me, I was, I was kind of thinking I was ranting about this on Facebook the other day. I just celebrated my 15th anniversary, so I was probably thinking about all of that. And how, you know, I, I grew up um, in, you know, the 80s and 90s and watching TV shows uh, in that era. And, a, you know, very common trope in, in TV shows and movies from that era was sort of this notion that marriage is slavery for men. And that a man getting married is, uh, is you know, is like a, it's like a funeral march for him, you know, in the, in the days leading up to his wedding. So he's lost his freedom and he's no longer allowed to run after uh, all sorts of different women, you know? So like if you watch Cheers, for example, right? So um, you've got, on the one hand, you've got Sam Malone, um, who is chasing a new woman in every episode and is quite proud of this. And he's the cool and amazing guy. And then you have uh, Norm, who's the sad, pathetic sack, who's always being hounded by his wife and talks about how miserable his wife makes him and, and stuff like that. Mm. And, uh, and so that's kind of, you know, what you grow up with hearing all the time, uh, is that marriage is, is, uh, a man sort of acquiesces to it. It's not something to pursue, but it's, you know, in this, that marriage is like accepting the fact that you're never going to be a size 32 waist anymore, right? Which, which as, as I'm pushing 40 is, you know, kind of the battle I'm going through. Your metabolism slows down and you go, well, yeah, I guess you got to just roll with it. And this is exactly the opposite of what Solomon is saying here. Is he, he's, he's not saying, look, you know, adultery is, is not going to work out that well. So just kind of suck it up and, and, 
and try not to run around on your, on your wife too much. Uh, you know, deal with this kind of boring old lady that you got hanging around you. But rather what Solomon is saying is the wife that you have is a gift from God. That's where you're going to find your blessing. That's where you're going to find your joy. Uh, even if you're, even if your wife is now an old lady, as she's aged along with you, uh, e- even if she's lost that kind of um, youthful beauty that she once had, delight in the breasts of the wife of your youth. Recognize that this is the woman that God has given you, and that the the true happiness, the true fulfillment, the true joy of of physically becoming one flesh with someone that you gain from her is infinitely greater than anything that you could ever gain uh, from the bed of a woman who doesn't belong to you. And uh, while the bed of the woman who doesn't belong to you is going to lead you astray and and bring you death, the the bed of the woman that God has given to you is going to give life. It's where you get children. It's where you find happiness and fulfillment. It's where your name and your legacy continues. I mean, especially, you know, if you're thinking about this in terms of Solomon writing this to his sons, you know, in in a realm of kings, where uh, ruling is is typically handed down from generation to generation, right? Uh, you you recognize you got to raise up godly sons, and well, where else are you going to get godly sons but from godly wives and from God, from their godly mothers? So this is where true happiness is going to come from. Marriage is not slavery. Marriage is freedom. Uh, marriage is not emptiness or boring marriage is joy and uh and and thrilling because it's where you find uh it's where you find peace and fulfillment without this risk of destruction Mm. i I think that the key in all of this to know that marriage is not slavery but it is freedom comes from the fact that it is god's gift to us the the reason that a man can look at his wife and treasure her in the way that solomon writes here is because She's the one that God has given to him in that relationship and and no one else. The adulteress, the forbidden woman, as as alluring, as pleasurable as she seems, she's not the one that God has given and, and therefore is not the treasure. The true treasure is the wife. And, and that comes because of what God has said. It, it was on a, a recent episode of, of Cross Defense where they were talking about seeing with your ears, seeing based on what God says. And and I think that's that's the idea behind behind Solomon's words here is that the reason that you delight in the wife of your youth, no matter how young or old she is, no matter what she looks like, is because she is the one that God gave to you. And that's true from his word and that can't lie to you. And it's a gift. Yeah. I mean, human beings get bored with things that are familiar. Uh, that's a cur- that's a curse we have in, in every aspect of our lives. And it's certainly a curse in marriage. You know, the thing that's appealing um, about adultery is that this is the new person. This is new flesh that you haven't had before. And, um, and there's a real kind of spiritual aspect to this too. This is kind of the same way that false doctrine and, and heresy and unbelief works, is that the new novel doctrine that you've never seen before, that promises you all of this earthly glory, uh, is always more appealing than you know that old uh, that old gospel you've had la- hanging around for a while that says you're going to have sufferings in this life, but you've got the peace and you have peace in the life to come. And so it always seems like you're going to find some greater joy in you know w- whatever the new heresy is, whether it's the prosperity gospel, whether it's this end times um, false uh, falseness or th- things of that nature. But the reality is, is that in the gospel of Christ crucified this great treasure that God has given to you, that's actually where you're going to find um, this, this true, great, lasting peace. 
And so don't bring your life to ruin by trying to find uh, joy in a, in, a, in a false gospel in the same way that you don't try to find joy in, in the flesh of a woman who doesn't belong to you. Hmm. Pastor Feeney, how do, how do we, I mean, outside of, outside of marriage, which is clearly the, the place of application for this text as, as Christians, that, I mean, verse, verse 20, why would you be intoxicated with the forbidden woman? Be intoxicated with the one that God has given to you. That's a very clear, and we should not miss that application. But in terms of you know the matter of then God's faithfulness to us, you, you mentioned this as something that we should talk about. We've got about five and a half minutes here. How does this apply in terms of God's faithfulness toward us? Yeah, so um, God doesn't get bored with his promises like we do. God doesn't imagine that there's more joy to be found uh, in forsaking his bride and going after someone else. Uh, but God is eternally faithful to his promises. And on account of that, we see, yeah, that kind of the sort of the deeper spiritual aspect of this is like I was saying, like I was saying just a minute ago, um, is that the truth is the thing that's going to set you free, not the new and novel lie that seems to be really enticing in the moment. Um, but the actual blood of Jesus Christ the promise of the forgiveness of sins, mercy and salvation, eternal life. Uh, so that the, the Ten Commandments fulfilled by the Son of God, that's the thing that's actually going to give you peace and contentment in life. And if you try to build a church uh, atop the teachings of that faithless woman, if you try and build a new religion that seems to be more thrilling, it's go only going to end up in, in destruction and hatred and cruelty, you know, I mean, so th this is why it is that, you, you know, you find in, in say, you know, heretical religions that have uh, shot off of Christianity, you don't find greater peace in there. So, you know, you can really kind of make the argument that Islam is ultimately a heresy of Christianity because it, it's a heresy of a heresy of Christianity. So it's kind of taken from um, heretical understandings of the Trinity. And that's, mm -hmm. those are the religions in the area that are influencing Muhammad that then Islam kind of rises up out of that. And uh, because Islam rejects the Trinity, it rejects the divinity of Jesus. And because it rejects the divinity of Jesus, it rejects the work of Jesus and takes the gospel away from people. And this is the and, and Islam in its day was the new captivating woman. Right. So all of a sudden you have this religion of strength and power, this religion that's fairly simple to understand, doesn't have these complex issues like the Trinity. It's a religion that responds more to raw power to um, to that to that kind of coercion. Uh, so it's uh, it's profoundly intriguing to people who want to see order and structure in society, but it robs you of the gospel, robs you of the comfort of the forgiveness of sins, robs you of of salvation. Uh, you know, when you look at the rise of say Mormonism in the United States, you know, which is born out of a rejection again of, of kind of those same things. It's a kind of a heresy of, of sort of um, Methodist Christianity and revivalist Christianity, and it comes from this idea that. Uh, we all we sort of lost what the true church was after the death of the apostles. And so here's this new exciting woman who comes along and says, I'm really the truth that everyone forgot. No one has seen me. So this new girl shows up on the scene and she seems to be really beautiful and has all of these things that seem to be going for it. Right. So this idea that uh, you were once uh, God was once a man and you can become gods of your own universe. You can spend all of eternity uh, with with your uh, spirit wives making babies and populating planets with them. You can make yourself holy enough. Uh, you can follow the commandments to such a degree that you actually earn eternal life from God. That's the appeal. And you get drawn into the back alley 
and then all of a sudden you're robbed of all of your strength and your the forgiveness of sins you lose it the idea that you can actually find peace in this life because you know that you're going to inherit eternal life because salvation has been won outside of you it's been been won through the hands of Jesus Christ not your own hands you're robbed of that and in the end you walk out of that alley beaten and bruised and stripped of the gifts that God has given you so, so this is so this is not only something that applies, you know, quite literally in the marriage bed, but it also applies when we understand uh, the church and when we understand salvation as having that kind of uh, that that spiritual marital component, like we see from Saint Paul in Ephesians chapter five. Be content with the gospel that Jesus has given you. Be content to be the the true bride of Christ and of your true bridegroom. Don't go out looking for other bridegrooms because the ones that you're going to find are going to end up destroying your soul. Mm. Pastor Feeney, with just a minute, summarize for us and, and give us that goods of, of the gospel. Yeah, the gospel is in terms of this kind of marital metaphor. The gospel is the promise um, that you were this uh, lost, broken, unfaithful woman. And, and then the king, the, the one who has the authority to cast you out of his kingdom, comes to you and claims you as his own bride. And he washes your wounds clean and he takes away your filth. And Jesus, in shedding his blood for you and laying down his life for you, makes you holy and gives you the right to live with him in his kingdom forever and promises you that you don't need to chase righteousness in other men. You don't need to make yourself holy in service of other men, uh, but rather that you have been given all of the holiness and eternal life and, and perfection that you need in the blood of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Everything that you need has been given to you in, in your bridegroom, and you lack absolutely nothing. Pastor Hans Feeney is the pastor at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri, helping us this morning with Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. Pastor Feeney, thanks for being our guest today. Glad to be with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.